Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog, from Fuga A to Fuga Z. I'm your host, Ian James Wright, and joining me today to discuss Forensic Scene from 1995's Red Medicine is Stuart Berman, a music journalist and critic who is a longtime contributor to Pitchfork and has also written for Rolling Stone, among others, and who is the author of This Book is Broken, A Broken Social Scene Story, and Too Much Trouble, A Very Oral History of Danko Jones. He's also a producer at CBC Radio's arts and entertainment show Q. Welcome to the show, Stuart Berman. How's it going? Very good. Thanks for having me, Ian. It's great to have you. Uh, You have a very long list of credits. Some of my uh, guests have worked with the band Fugazi. Some are simply fans. A couple of times I've had somebody with a critic's acumen like yourself. I, uh, I had read a couple of your sort of reviews of records that had come out after Fugazi's tenure, like their first demo uh, record and uh, the recent Kuriki right. release. I just had an instinct that you would be interested in talking Fugazi with me. One other thing that I wanted to say before I ask you about Fugazi is after I had uh, asked you to join me, I was I was looking at some more of your um, the things you had written for Pitchfork, and I noticed that you had written an article that really caught my attention a few years ago, which is uh, titled Arcade Fire's Funeral and the Legacy of the Whoa-O. And, uh, yeah, so yes, yeah. That, was, uh, that was it. That was written during peak Whoa-O period of, yes, I was like, of indie rock. <laughs> I remember reading that when that came out, and I was like, this guy, yes, th- that's a great observation, and it certainly seems like it originated with the Arcade Fire. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there were, there were precedents for, for the Whoa-O, you know, dating back to, uh, like, you know, like Biko by Peter Gabriel's got a big whoa sure. course at the end, but yeah, Arcade Fire definitely turned it into a uh, you know a must-have accessory yes. for uh, a currency for any realm. sort of for any sort of rustic folksy indie indie rock band in, <laughs> in the late two thousands. Absolutely. How did you get into the music journalism game? Were you a uh, somebody who wrote for the high school newspaper like I did? Not high school, but university uh, newspaper. At uh, I went to the University of Toronto. And I was actually studying, uh, of all things, uh, business. Uh, I got a bachelor in commerce, but uh, I was so bored by my studies that I needed some kind of creative outlet. So I started volunteering for our student newspaper, The Varsity, and then just sort of like kept hanging out and you know reviewing records. Then eventually I became like the arts and culture editor there. And uh, after I graduated, I started interning at one of our local e- uh, weeklies called iWeekly. And this was, that would have been around 98 and, uh, interned there and then stuck around again. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> you know, they say, what's the old quote? You know, 90% of life is showing up. <laughs> right, uh, right. And so I freelanced there for a bit and then I gradually became the music editor there in 2000 and, you know, was an editor at that magazine for the next 10 years. And then it turned into another publication It rebranded into a, a city magazine called The Grid. Which, like many uh, city publications, uh, went under in 2014, and so I've just been freelancing full time since then. Yeah, and you've you've had a long tenure at at Pitchfork, at least like what 15 years or so at this point. I uh, believe uh, February 2021 will mark my 15th anniversary. It's yeah, it's crazy. I'm one of the old, I'm one of the geezers on staff there. Yeah, now. at this point, uh, right. <laughs> uh, it's weird. I realize, like, yeah, there's there's very few of us from that era still around. But you know, I've kind of 
I guess I've eased into my lane there, which is the, uh, you know, aged indie rock man stages reunion or reissue of classic rock <laughs> record. <laughs> I got that, you know, I've been kind of working that beat for a while, but I do try like, you know, to, uh, you know, I still love reviewing new stuff for them. And, you know, um, so it's just a question of like of the 50 bands I pitched them, <laughs> you know, in a given year that, that maybe aren't on their radar. Um, you know, I'll, I'll get a handful of those to write about each year. <laughs> I was wondering, you know, I'm sh- surely you have occasion to speak with other critics about things now and then maybe even Fugazi. I was, I was just wondering, uh, tossing it back and forth in my mind. It seems like, it seems like very few critics are, sort of anti-Fugazi, it seems like mostly... Would you say that Fugazi is, is one of those bands that gets branded with a sobriquet uh, critical darling? Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, it's almost like they, they transcend like simply being a, a band that gets critiqued. Like, they, you know, they're... In a way, they're like a moral compass for people. <laughs> like, you know, they weren't just a band. They kind of shaped, like, people's worldviews. Like, I know... You know, they were a huge part of my like political evolution and like opening my eyes to things I I wasn't aware of. So it's almost like you feel like you owe something to them, <laughs> like, you know, more so than you know the average indie rock band. Uh, you know, I, I think among you know you can get into debates and arguments about certain albums are better than others, certain albums of age better than others, and. I think they're the kind of band that if you interview 10 different fans, you'll come up with 10 different cho- or however many records they have. <laughs> what's the, what's the total seven or eight. Um, but you will get like a different answer. I think from most people, I mean, everyone's got, this wasn't a band that had like one breakthrough hit that everyone rallied around and sort of, you know, shaped where everyone's fandom was shaped by the same album. You know, everyone has like a very different way of getting into Fugazi. I find. Yeah, I have to agree. It's those are all sentiments that have come up a couple of times in the course of doing yeah. the show. So yeah, I think you're. Uh, I think people will agree with you on that for sure. Um, do you, do you want to tell me a little more about when you got into Fugazi and how you discovered them and uh, how how that progressed throughout the years? Yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. Like I was not a hardcore kid uh, growing up. You know, I grew up in a a very unpunk neighborhood of Toronto in, in the north end of the city. Uh, you know, I would say, you know, spiritually, the vibe where I grew up was more 90210 than 930 Club. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I grew up I grew up on the periphery of a wealthy neighborhood, but, you know, my family was not wealthy uh, our, ourselves. But, you know, I went to high school with a lot of rich kids. like, And it was very much like a sort of rich deadhead high school. Like, you know, these were the people who were in with fish at the ground level, like way before fish became a huge phenomenon. Like it was, so it was a very like hippie, classic rock loving sort of environment. Um, so, you know, but, you know, not being in the you know same socioeconomic class as a lot of my friends, you know, I always felt a little bit at a remove from them. So, you know, music was one way that, you know, sort of kind of developed my own identity. And, you know, originally, like, my idea of alternative music was, like, Jane's Addiction or Red Hot Chili Peppers, Fake No More, the kind of, you know, punk, funk thing that was really big in the late 80s. Um, but, you know, really, I was one of those, millions of kids who got ra- radicalized by nirvana you know nirvana yeah. was really the gateway 
into this like deeper level of underground music and Fugazi was this band that, you know, always came up in interviews with other bands, you know, you know, they'd be name dropped by Eddie Vedder and, and Flea would talk about them all the time. And, you know, so they were kind of like this mythical entity for me first before I ever heard their music. And, you know, I, the first thing I bought was 13 songs because that's where, you know, everyone says you got to start. And it was interesting, like, you know, I thought it was cool, but it felt like it still felt kind of tethered to that, like, funk punk moment of the late 80s that I felt like I was kind of growing out of in a way. Um, you know, I was really getting, like after Nirvana, I was like really into Sonic Youth and, you know, that sort of, they were like my sort of yeah. North Star for, for indie rock exploration. Um, so Fugazi seemed like, I don't know, like my initial reaction was like, oh, this is kind of like maybe a little bro-ish. <laughs> like, <you know, laughs> I guess compared to Sonic much. Youth, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, and like you know, and then like Rage Against Machine got really huge around that same time, and you know, so I kind of saw them like sort of spiritually connected and sort of doing similar things with dissonance and and funky bass lines. Um, but then once like Killtaker came out, like that's when I really fully got on board. Like that was like aha, yeah, this is this is the record for me that kind of like totally aligns with what I'm into right now. So like, you know, from Nirvana to Sonic Youth to like Jesus Lizard touch and go stuff. It was kind of like, you know, Killtaker felt like it was very much of a piece with that kind of stuff. And then like Red Medicine was really the album that like, you know, that became my favorite Fugazi record and one of my favorite albums of all time to this day. And it's the one I go back to the most because I felt with uh, Red Medicine was sort of like the bridge between sort of noisy indie rock into like the world of post rock, you know, around 95 was this really, I think it's like really pivotal turning points in the history of indie rock hmm. because it was kind of like the tail end of the Nirvana, the dream of Nirvana right. of like all, all your favorite underground bands getting major label deals and becoming huge stars. Like, by 95, it was pretty clear that's not going to happen. Um, you know, everyone was kind of releasing their their failed major label follow-up <laughs> record. Right, yeah. And, uh, you know, Sonic Youth headlined Lollapalooza, which, you know, that Lollapalooza was amazing. It was, a, like, an amazing build. Like, Sonic Youth, uh, Hole, Pavement, Jesus Lizard. But it was, like, the lowest-selling Lollapalooza at the time. And so I think it was the Lollapalooza... Is that the one where pavement got pelted with mud? Yes, that was a, yeah, that was in like Virginia or something. The Toronto area stuff for that was actually amazing. And I, I remember interviewing Bob Nostanovich a few years later. He was like, like, yeah, that was one of the good ones. Toronto was one of the good ones because it wasn't a seated amphitheater. It was like an open field so everyone could move up. So if you were a pavement fan, you could move right to the front. Um, whereas, you know, they were playing amphitheaters that were like, empty <laughs> in the first 20 rows, had to play to the people on the, on the grass in the back. But yeah, so 95 was sort of this turning point year where like, yeah, that sort of mainstream indie rock was sort of dying out. But on an underground level, things were really opening up into like the post-rock realm. And, you know, that's, you know, bands like Stereo Lab were, you know, turning people on to like Can and, and you know, Noi. And, you know, so I felt like there was a lot of all these weird esoteric influences started having a bigger moment. 
yeah, on an underground level. It's certainly the record Sorry. where Fugazi started getting weird. I don't think you would apply that to them before Red Medicine came out, but they certainly did yeah, some like, odd things here. Yeah, the like Killtaker's got a bit of that. Um, but yeah, Red Medicine, they really kind of go far out. And I, you know, it, you know, I always remember, I haven't watched Instrument in a long time, but, you know, the thing that I always remember about that movie is like, where Jim Cohen's interviewing people outside yeah. <laughs> the shows in 95 and like, they're all like, yeah, we hate the new shit. We just want to hear the old stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's funny coming from, you know, the other angle where I'm like, no, this is like, this is where they really became the band that they should be. Like, you know, this is where everything sort of clicks. Um, so yeah. So yeah. Red medicine is like the album. I really sealed my you know fan for life. That's, did you ever have occasion status. to see them live? I saw them on the End Hits tour. Nice. It's very, yeah, like when they came for Killtaker, I think it was like, it was still at that phase where, you know, I didn't have really any friends that were into this music, so I had no one to go to the show with, and I was, you know, maybe a little too intimidated to <laughs> go down to the club myself. But by 98, they were, um, you know, I, I had found my people and uh, could go to the show. And what I remember about that show is uh, I'd just gotten back from, like I'd graduated and I just got back from backpacking through the UK for the summer and I was flat broke. And But I thought I still had like, I, I had my first credit card, which had a $500 limit. And I was pretty sure when I came back to Canada, I was like, I think there's still $100 left on that credit card. That should see me through um, to the next you know, the next week or so before, like I had some freelance checks coming in and, uh, and I remember going down to the show and, you know, I, I went to ATM and I'm like, all right, I'm going to take out $60 and nope, I was rejected. And then like, all right, I'm going to take out $40, like, nope, rejected. And then $20, like, nope, <laughs> rejected. And then there was like this one bank in Toronto that could let you took out $10. So, <laughs> So I was able to take out $10 and the show, which I believe was adjusted for Canadian dollar, was like a $7 show. Yeah, yeah, that'll get <laughs> you into then, a Fugazi and then show. I had, <laughs> and then I had $3 to take the subway home. So That's amazing. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> and then what I discovered was the reason why my credit card had no room on it was just before I went away, I signed up for the AOL 30 hours free uh, <laughs> CD offer. Oh, no. And uh, I'd only used about like two of those hours but unbeknownst to me i didn't read the fine print you have to use up your free 30 hours in the first like month <laughs> or else they start charging you <laughs> a monthly <laughs> membership <laughs> so they were dinging me for like six months that's how and, they I didn't really... and that's yeah so that was i felt like that aol versus fugazi kind of <laughs> war of the war of the world's playing out in my life but yes um and i was so happy when they, you know, Fugazi started posting all their live sets. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, so I was able to buy that show. Like, that's, that's like the most meaningful sort of show souvenir. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but just the point, yeah, like even though that show was whew, like 22 years ago now, 20, yeah, like, you know, I still, still remember it. Like it's just still felt like, yeah, you're like going to church <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. There's definitely like, it's just, a, you know, just seeing a band that's like so that so intuitive on stage, like, you know, the, you know, where you're, they're just they have this like telepathic communication. And I just love that. Like, you know, you had no idea what you were going to get 
in terms of the set list, you know, and there's just yeah, this like real fluidity to it. And it really made me realize, like appreciate like Guy as one of like the greatest performers of our time. Yeah. He's just like all over the stage. Yeah. He's, he was something special for sure to see live. And it would always, it would always make me nervous on some level, not just because he was throwing himself around, but he was always like knocking over mic stands and whatnot. And I was at people in the audience. I'm, I'm pretty sure I at one time like caught a Fugazi mic stand and like helped boost it back up. It's that kind of thing where you're like on guard. You're like, you're, you're on call. Like I'm going to have to help out here. Like at the time I was like really to like bands like the John Spencer blues explosion and, and yeah. the makeup. And, you know, you think of like, John Spencer and Ian being these like kind of like sex machine type personas on stage. And you don't think of like E in the same as operating in the same realm, but he totally has that like physicality to him and like totally just like this like real flamboyance. So it's like, it's very underrated quality when you talk about Fugazi, you know, the conversation around Fugazi is always so serious and, you know, it's always seen through like a political lens, but he is just like a fantastic, like, performer and just like really magnetic and just yeah and has like you know classic sort of sex appeal to him well that's a pretty good segue into the song we're talking about today which is a gi vocal song it yes. is forensic scene from red medicine and it's uh it's, it's one of the slower ones it's one of the moodier sort of lower key at least in the beginning ones um by way of yeah. introductory remarks um just have uh, sort of one thing here. I, I was looking for quotes online from Guy, who is famously reticent to speak about the meaning of his lyrics. Uh, but there is an interview from uh, uh, from uh, from Norway in 1995 that's up at the blog of friend of the show, Junser Hobbits. And in that interview, he's asked about the meaning of this song. And he just says, it's a more personal song. You can't say that it's about a specific person or something like that. It's more about a situation, and I think it's up to people to figure it out for themselves. Um, so yeah. with that, uh, Stuart Berman, I'll give you the first word. What's the first thing you <laughs> think we should talk about when it comes to forensic scene? Well, I think it's, it's you know, I think the most striking thing about the song off the top uh, before you get into the lyrics is just it's it's so melodic compared to a lot of Fugazi, you know, Fugazi songs have always been catchy and you, you kind of shed along to them. But, uh, this, you know, this feels like a, a very kind of like, you know, almost Beatlesque melodic structure to this song. And, you know, I've, I know Fugazi have always, you know, cited the Beatles as, as a formative influence when they were growing up, but this is the first song where you actually hear it other than like, you know, E shouting out, I'm only sleeping. And, in turnover um but this is like and i guess repeater was also supposed apparently like a pun on revolver that was uh right according to ian but this is like where you actually hear the musical dna in that and you know what i love about Guy's vocals um is like when he does sing more quieter melodic stuff he becomes like a very different kind of singer like even when ian sings quietly he still sounds like ian he still sounds like you know, someone who shouts for a living, <laughs> just sort of taking <laughs> taking a bit of a breather. But he, like his vocal on this, I think is very different than 
what you hear on his usual sort of more aggressive songs. Um, and yeah, there's like this kind of frailty to it. And, but also like kind of like a British glamminess to it as well. Um, so yeah, so that's, you know, I remember like when I very first time I'd listened to this record going like, Whoa, this is, this is different. Um, and then, yeah, lyrically it's, yeah, it seems to be less of like kind of a macro statement on, on some, you know, political issue or injustice. And it seems to be speaking as a very intimate sort of scene. Um, you know, it almost feels like a breakup song in some ways, like it's, it's sort of surveying the end of a relationship and, uh, you know, the language feels like someone who's been, you know, you know, either like cheated on or sort of scorned in some way. And, um, and it's just interesting that like, you know, and sort of you could draw an, an analogy between like a bedroom where something has happened with like a crime scene. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's think of intimate intimacy, you know, breeds bodily fluids just as, you know, murder scene does. <laughs> so I feel like right. I, I'm wondering if he was kind of intentionally playing on that. Yeah, as as cagey as Guy was being in that quote, um, like I can't I can't see this song as being about anything other than as, than a breakup, basically, um, or yeah. or breakups in general, uh, like a wider commentary on that. And it seems to me, from what I can read and and what uh, listeners to the show have to say, that everyone's sort of in agreement on that. So, as you alluded to there, it has this sort of classic Guy sensibility where a lot of his songs have to do with, uh, like sort of discomfort with the body, like, and he never he never dis- yeah. he never talks about. Uh, issues relating to the body in like sort of a comforting way I, I get the sense that he's the sort of person who loves like when it comes to horror films he just loves body horror and things like that you know he's <laughs> he's always writing about uh things in in ways that can make you squirm and certainly yeah this has some lines like that in particular like the first one that strikes me in and out just like a knife would tax the flesh and leave a cheap yeah. wound seems to be metaphor metaphorically describing sexual intercourse in a very disturbing way. Yes. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's some from a perspective, some music feels like very bitter, which is, it's weird. Like you don't think of like Fugazi is assuming the sort of like angry male perspective, like at least in a, in a sort of romantic context of like, you know, you know, yeah. you know, she broke my heart, you know, you know, <laughs> kind of like revenge, like vengeful ex-lover type perspective. And, and it's interesting, like in approaching that perspective, you know, he's using language that's very strange <laughs> in the context of, of like a romantic song or, you know, it kind of reminds me like in a sort of spiritual sense, like, like, uh, you know, love will get you like a case of anthrax, but gang of four, um, <laughs> you know, where they're singing about love as a disease yeah. <laughs> that, that you don't want, that you don't want to catch. So yeah, it's like you're saying, like this weird discomfort with the body. And yeah. With although, to be honest, here. I had been wondering if Guy was writing this more from the perspective of somebody who was dumped or somebody who is doing the dumping. Like, I think it's actually kind of ambiguous in that way. Cause I mean, it's clearly See, he's I, writing with a sense of like disgust of the whole thing. But I mean, yeah, man, to anyone who's been on both sides of that, it's rough to be dumped, but man, it's really rough to dump somebody also. 
I feel like he is the dumpy in the situation because yeah. of just the course. Like, it's uh, sorry is just another no shit Sherlock no talk con job. Like, like where he's basically saying like, you know, there's nothing you can say to me that will, you know, make me forgive you. Um, yeah, but I've, yeah, I feel I've, like, I, like I've felt that from the other side too. It's like I want to say I'm sorry, yeah. but like, what is that worth? Like, I know it's not worth anything to you for me to say that. Um, so yeah, that's just what makes me think of it. And it, it is also interesting that that sort of uh, sorry is just a no shit Sherlock mouth talk con job. It sort of brings back up a Fugazi line from the past: uh, "Promises are shit. We speak the way we breathe." That that sort of mouth talk. Um, line in in particular it's a it's like it seems redundant at first but it's a sort of clever way of getting at the how hollow words can be sometimes yeah and it's just yeah, it's just one of those phrases like that just has been lodged in my mind yeah, <laughs> for yeah, like yeah. 25 years like <laughs> shit Sherlock no talk which can be applied to so many things <laughs> in our culture yeah, right it's now. funny I was I was thinking like you're, you're somebody with uh with kids you must have spent your fair share of time work, uh, thinking about names for potential children and i i had always thought like sherlock you know as in sherlock holmes that would be kind of a cool name to bring back for a kid like name your kid that except for there's this phrase that anytime he says something (laughs) obvious somebody's gonna be like no shit sherlock and it's gonna be the most hilarious thing you know there's been some sherlock holmes reboots in recent years so i imagine there's somebody's named their kid after sherlock holmes i wonder Um, but yeah but maybe, yeah, they probably weren't thinking of it. As is often the case when parents name children, they don't uh, think think these things through <laughs> from, a, from, from a holistic perspective. They're just, you know, thinking from the heart. Absolutely. But, uh, but it's interesting. I watched um, a live video of this song, uh, which I think was shot in, like, 96, like, at uh, some university quad outdoor show. There's, like, the whole show is on YouTube in, in segments. Um but it's interesting, like, in performing the song live, a lot of the sort of melodic nuance kind of gets, you know, overpowered by you know, the need to deliver a sort of, you know, forceful rock song in a live context. So, like, his vocal performance on this song is a lot more traditionally D-like, which yeah. is cool. It's, it's interesting to hear it through that filter after, you know, living with the sort of the original version for so many years. Yeah, this is something that Guy sometimes does live, especially with the slower songs where on the record he sings in a in a more low-pitched way. I think I commented on this also with Fell Destroyed, um, but there are a few other ones. But, but when he does those songs live, he tends to sing the verse higher, but, it, but like not an octave higher. It's like he comes in at a different note and tries and just sort of hovers around the like the the key center of the song like comes at it from a different angle um i i i usually think it doesn't work very well like it just doesn't work the same way as on the record yeah and i I wonder always why that is maybe he just feels that singing too low he can't maybe he can't even hear himself doing it live well enough or he feels like it's too buried in the mix um, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a million factors that affect your performance when you're on stage, and often the stage mon- quality of the stage monitors uh, yeah. affects everything. Something else I noticed uh, about this one live, you, you, know, you mentioned about their telepathic sort of way of communicating with each other, and a lot of the time they would launch into a song uh, seemingly reading each other's minds. 
it seems to me, looking at live versions, like maybe they didn't have a way to do that perfectly with this one. Because it seems right. like, at least in a few of the versions I saw, it, it would just be sort of a silent break in between songs, and one of them would just say, this next song is called Forensic Scene, and they would start it like that. Yeah, <laughs> so, um, yeah I mean, it's such, a, it's such a strange kind of beast. Like, you know, really, when you when you hear the song, it's kind of like a Beatles song being played as if it were a slint song. Like, interesting. Dynamic, it's just got that sort of like, sort of like trudging rhythm um and then it you know kind of explodes into like the sort of intense climax um so yeah just it's i imagine it would have been a hard thing a hard thing to strike in a live setting and you know whenever like a sort of band that's known for being noisy and aggressive starts doing quieter more delicate material yeah i imagine there's a bit of like apprehension about doing it live um you know, you know, I was I was a big fan of like Andy Winolos by the Trail of Dead, like throughout the 2000s, and you know their records got more refined. And I found even when I saw them like on much later records, like 70 percent of the set list was still from the first two records <laughs> because like the, that's the stuff that just like made the most sense live, and they they didn't touch like any of their like piano ballads really hmm. because you know maybe that's just not what people wanted. But yeah, I noticed like uh, going on like set list FM, like forensic seems like way down. It's like, you know, it's very much in the middle of the pack in terms of songs that got aired out in a live setting. But I do feel like it's a very significant song in the evolution of this band because, you know, especially it really like points the, the way to like some of my favorite stuff on the argument, like yeah. uh, Life and Lemon, you know, Night Shop and, you know, it, yeah, really, I feel like opened up a new avenue for D to express himself. Um, further to a couple of points that you made just there, well, t- talking about it as sort of a Beatlesque melody, uh, I just yes. I did have one other quote when this album came out. There's a review of it in the Washington City paper by Patrick Foster. Uh, the short quote forensic scene is driven by disgust at the circus like oj simpson trial <laughs> which i which i think is a ridiculous <laughs> thing to say like i don't know where he's coming from with that um but he says uh, uh yeah at the circus like oj simpson trial it's sing-song nearly lenin-esque vocal fraught with hold release momentum so um yeah at least we can agree with the second uh, part of that i think well you know i don't i don't blame him for taking that interpretation necessarily because like fugazi you know they they, uh, you know, could often like respond to like what was in the headlines. Yeah, uh, that's true. Like Dear Justice Letters, you know, very topical of yeah. the moment song. Um, yeah, I think if they yeah, had a I take know. on the O.J. Simpson trial, it would be yeah, some, probably like something more about like racial tensions or something, <laughs> and not just like let's let's write a song about a murder scene. <laughs> I don't know. I don't see it, but. You were talking about the the rhythm of it also, uh, and I did want to mention that that sort of beginning beat and that sort of simple bass line reminds me very much of the Pixies, especially uh, in particular the song "I Bleed" is I think very much like this. I was thought um, Public Witness was their Pixies homage to like that, like the sort of uh, hmm. the the sort of faster surf surf damage yeah, style of Pixies. So yeah. I'm, I don't know if I ever read the band like explicitly acknowledging that the Pixies were an influence. Because um, yeah, they, like Fugazi, they weren't the kind of band that necessarily, 
you know, whenever you read about their influences, they're always talking more about like the classic bands that inspired them, like you know, MC Five and the Stooges. And, um, but yeah, I don't ever recall them saying, "Yeah, we listened to this Tortoise record." <laughs> That's what yeah. we're doing. Yeah, yeah. I think I feel like the Bad Brains is the biggest thing they ever reference when they're asked about that sort of thing. And obviously, there's so much in their catalog that could not possibly come from just hardcore music in any way so they're they're clearly taking stuff from a, a lot of different sources and that's you know then when i look back at them like you know where they you know the place they held in my life is yeah i see them as very much like a bridge they bridged a lot of different scenes for me and you know like i said early on they were kind of had a foot in the sort of the punk funk realm but you know but also did this like arty dissonant <laughs> music and then from Red Medicine on, they, you know, really, you know, blew open the parameters and got super weird and dubby and psychedelic. And while also, like, you know, I think they, in their later years, they leaned into their classic rock influences a little more as well. Um, but they never felt like they were doing anything in a retro way. Like, they, what was so cool about them was how they could bring, like, an element like the Beatles into their music without it sounding like a beat. Like, it's not like... It's not like Forensic Scene could have existed on any Beatles song, like <laughs> on any on any Beatles album. I I could maybe see it on the White Album somewhere. There's a tiny bit of funkiness in this song too, though. Um, like I think just sort of the the rhythm guitar in the chorus is if it were at a faster tempo, it'd be almost a little danceable. Same with that little instrumental break after right. the second verse, like Is there? There's a little bit of there's a little bit of a. <laughs> A little finesse, there's a little yeah. tiny bit of booty shaking in an otherwise dour song. But I think as I, as I was alluding to in, in our email correspondence before this, it's like yeah, I realized like you know the Beatles' influence on Fugazi is probably more like sort of a spiritual in a way because I, I feel like their their Fugazi's different eras align with the Beatles' different eras. So like you could see. 13 songs is like the meet the Beatles era. It's sort of like in the same way, like, you know, if I go back and listen to meet the Beatles, like, Hey, you know, I want to hold your hand catchy tune, but it's not like, yeah, obviously they, they outgrew that really quickly. Um, same thing. Like that's this feeling I get often when I listen to 13 songs. It's like, you know, this stuff's obviously like super catchy and it's good, but I feel like they became such a better band later on that, yeah, you know, I don't often go back to, to 13 songs. And then, like, Repeater is sort of like, you know, the Hard Day's Night moment <laughs> of, like, you know, the hysteria is sort of peaking. Um, Steady Diet is sort of the, like, Beatles for Sale kind of, you know, a bit, bit toned down a bit. Uh, yeah, maybe not. You know, Steady Diet has never been my bet, my favorite Fugazi record. Um and then Killtaker is sort of like the, I feel like they're the Rubber Soul Revolver era where they're really you know, coming into their own. And then Red Medicine for me is like the Sgt. Pepper's moment where everything <laughs> kind of blows wide open. And then and End Hits is like the White Album. You know, it's just kind of, it's, it's more, sp- is that their, I feel like that's their longest record, End Hits. Um, or at least it feels I like their longest I think it would have to be, to yeah. I, feels, I actually don't know off the top of my head, but it's got to be. Um and and then the argument is the triumphant Abbey Road capper to to 
to the career. This tracks. I feel um, like this is an essay that you should be writing. You know, thank you for coming <laughs> to my TED Talk. You know, this is, I, I want your draft on my desk by Monday. But yeah, and, and you know, and, you know, I don't think I want Fugazi to reunite because I feel like they've left us with, you know, kind of like a perfect catalog and uh, a perfect story. And I feel like, yeah, reforming would uh, kind of go against what, what they were about. Like, it's one thing to have to like reunite and learn how to play your songs as well as you did, but also to be able to perform with the same like electricity that people know you're capable of. It must be like really hard. And, you know, from, from you know the images I see of Guy these days, I feel like he's he's, <laughs> he's moved beyond that. You know, he's he's he just wants to you know watch his basketball games and, <laughs> and not be disturbed by the jungle. Yeah, yeah, I wonder also if that's. that having that perspective that comes with age makes maybe takes you a little out of being able to really put yourself in the emotion behind a song like this. I can imagine it would be, you know, it's so long since the, the, you know, the most dramatic breakups and relationships of your life that you might be just sort of like, I can't really do this song justice anymore. Although, you know, the, the Kariki record that came out earlier this year, um, you know, you can tell Ian could still do it. <laughs> he could still turn it on if he has to. I think the fun part about hearing that record is, you know, it, it is a little more congenial than, than a Fugazi record. It's got a more sort of gentle melodic sensibility at play, but there are moments where Ian kind of like slips back into like <laughs> superhero mode. <laughs> and like he gets real like, yeah, he's back. Uh, yeah. I, I believe you, you drew some sort of comparison of, of him being like Superman and Clark Kent in the, Fugazi and Kariki. Yeah, I, I, well, it was originally like with the Evens, you know, oh, being right, sort right. of his Clark, Clark Kent, uh, you know, like in Superman 2 where Clark, where Superman decides to live as a mere mortal, <laughs> you know, I think we felt, some of us maybe felt, you know, after Fugazi broke up, the Evens was sort of like a Clark Kent move, like where he's just trying to, you know, do his thing in a very unassuming fashion and, you know, kind of deflate maybe some of the mythology around him and just do something very like humble and yeah. homespun and, <laughs> And Kariki feels like, yeah, he's maybe like tapping back into that superhero power. But I did want to say that I, I love the sort of mandolin-like guitar part on the second chorus really brings it to a new level. It's this like high melody. Uh, I guess Guy is doing it, like tremolo picking. Um, that's that's a very nice addition. And I, I do like how the song comes to rest on this sort of dissonant chord to, uh, to leave us a little unsettled without resolution. It's interesting, you know, when you say mandolin, it kind of makes me wonder, like, what if Fugazi did an MTV Unplugged special in 95? <laughs> well, you have me, <laughs> so, with, with your uh, comparison to the Beatles eras, you have me wondering, like, what if they changed their look with every era? Like, yeah. <laughs> this is when they all had mustaches. <laughs> that would be amazing. Like, <laughs> nope, Ian's still wearing it. Yeah. And as far as the lyrics, <laughs> I, I wanted to point out, occasionally you get these nice made up uh gee words in his songs perversify is one of those i don't believe that's a that's a word anybody else has ever used uh so tip of the hat for one of a sighting of a made up gee word and i mean uh, people yeah sorry i was gonna say like people talked about you know yeah the the hip-hop influence on fugazi like you know i know like the Ian E dynamic has been compared to like chuck d flavor flavor and i wonder if yeah, things like that, like perversify, come from like hip hop and the way hip hop sort of experiments with language and hmm. 
you know, de- develops its own vocabulary. Yeah, that could be. I I can't I can't think of a off the top of my head a better way to. Well, I guess pervert is itself a a transitive verb, so I guess you could just use that. Um, I guess it bears thinking about how perversify is what connotations it has that would be different from that. Um, I don't know. I never considered that before. I think it goes, you know, I think it fits into the song, the song theme of like, you know, this sort of, sort of mess that's been created. Perversify sounds like, you know, something's been tainted and, Um, you know, manipulated in an unsavory way. And as far as that mess goes, one of the questions like a lingering question that I had is when he says this forensic scene's all played out, it seems to me that could have two possible meanings. One being uh, played out as in everything that has happened has happened. It's all said and done. You know, the chalk outlines of the bodies are down, bullet holes in the walls. You can see the evidence of this, uh, this, you know, violent scene that's happened here. Or it could mean played out as in breakups are so cliche and breakup songs are so cliche that there's almost nothing left to say about them. And I mean, if if it's that latter thing that he was getting at, it's sort of interesting that he's comparing a breakup to a forensic scene, but not for shock value, just rather to say that it's sort of tired and it's been done so many times. I'm not sure totally what to think on that. Yeah, I, I kind of lean more to the, the former interpretation, just saying like, you know, what's done is done here. Yeah. Like we can't turn back the clock. Like this is, uh, you know, the evidence is on, on the bed and, you know, nothing you can say can erase this from my mind because you know i can see it in front of me and you know and that's why like yeah words words aren't gonna help you here like saying sorry won't won't help right. it's, it's done here one of the one of the great lines that i don't think i had ever really paid attention to before i started re-examining the song for this episode is just the line i'm a failure not your failure now it's a very striking and sad way to talk about a breakup. It's like, I'm not your failure anymore. I'm just a failure. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That is harsh. And, yeah. And it's, it, and it's sort of, it adds like a weird layer to a song where the song feels very like accusatory towards like someone else's actions. But yet then he's kind of like turning the camera back on himself saying, you know, well, I'm a fuck up anyways. So, you know, this serves me right, or, you know, it's this weird... Yeah, that's one of the things that's... Self-flagellation. Yeah, one of the rough things about being broken up with is you're mad at the other person, but you also don't feel great about yourself. It's it's a blow to the self-esteem. So, I guess maybe it brings that out a little bit. But I guess, you know, the uh, not, I'm not your failure now line suggests, like, okay... I won't. I won't be freeloading off your rent. <laughs> like, right. I guess I'm gonna have to buy my own groceries now. I think that that might play into the line congenitally fractured, uh, maybe just meaning that he's if the feeling that he's a he's a broken person. He he always has been, and that's maybe uh, been part of the cause yeah. of this breakup. Um, I don't know. It, it also, I, I think, in that context. Um, it, the the similarity of that word to genitalia almost seems yeah. almost seems deliberate. Like that's, <laughs> I thought he was actually saying that word the first several times I listened to the song. Um, so it's a it, that's a nice clever little bit of wordplay if that was intentional. But the song also just suggests like he's been through this before as well. Like this is sort of like a like 
depressing cycle that keeps playing out. That's true. Yeah. And like that he's like seen the, you know, it's like, Oh, this again. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's like, I, I know how this goes. It's not going to be pretty. Let's just cut our ties right now and save ourselves. Yeah. You know a lot more grief yeah and i also wonder so, yeah. if uh, the the first line of the song in your memory not so gentle it's almost saying mm-hmm. like maybe this isn't even written about a recent breakup this could be something written 10 years right. uh, about a, an event that happened 10 years prior that he still just turns over in his mind and it's like it's w- one of these conflicting memories he has between perverted and <laughs> sentimental um but that he he has to. He still feels like he has to work out in uh, song form. But also, like you know, that sometimes the only way to move forward is to like just turn your heart into stone and yeah. like be completely emotionless and completely, yeah, suck any feeling out of, of the experience because you know because it hurts too much. So you just so like that's that's a feeling I've always gotten from his vocal on this song is like just this kind of numbed pain and you know just trying to get through it and you know and and you know his voice does get a little more um you know emotional like in in the final chorus like it 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 you know there is much more you know hurt and ache coming through i feel like so maybe it's maybe it's also saying that you can't (laughs) ever fully suppress this stuff yeah it's always it's like a a scab or a scar over an old wound. It's uh, it never totally goes away. I think that's super relatable. Um, but yeah, yeah, and yeah, no. that definitely speaks to what you were saying before, also about his range as a performer. He's he's got so much of it. He can he can sort of croon lowly, and he can really belt out some uh, emotional, high pitched singing and and crazy screams all all sorts of things so yeah tip of the hat to yep. gee he's quite a performer quite a singer and uh quite a writer uh i think i'll yeah no he's he's a quadruple threat and you know a pretty shit hot guitar player too i would say so uh i'd like to turn to a couple of our listeners on the facebook page who have uh, written a couple of their thoughts about this uh just Two of them, first, the aforementioned Junter Hobbits, he says, so many great lines on this one, another example of Guy's lyrical craftsmanship. The man is a wordsmith, written from the perspective of someone perpetually fucking up intimate relationships, question mark. It's notable as well just how slow the studio take of this song is once the bass and drums lock into a dragging yet driving pulse like the soundtrack to a death march after the opening guitar sliding sound, and how difficult it turned out to be to get the tempo just right live, where, for instance, Blueprint got played significantly and deliberately faster early on in the live sets, and the tempo change improved the punch of that song, in my opinion. I heard quite a few live versions of Forensic Scene where an accidental upbeat pace pretty much botched the delivery of the song. Um, <laughs> yeah, agreed. Some A bit of a spotty yeah. for, for a band that I think is... Probably the best live band ever that I that I've ever seen. It's one of my few complaints. Is uh, yeah, some some of these slower songs they just they don't didn't get quite right some of the time. Um, and they don't really lend themselves to like their like their jamming side. True. Like, like where they can stretch out and freak out a bit. Like it's they kind of have to play it straight, and stick to the script with these kinds of songs. 
Another listener, Jenna LaFleur, wrote, I know you've made some Mountain Goats comparisons before. This one reminds me of their recent song, Cadaver Sniffing Dog, in the way they both compare the end of a relationship to a crime scene. Yeah, this is this is a thought that I had myself also, Jenna, and I almost thought that I'd maybe been mentioning the Mountain Goats on the show too much recently, although on second <laughs> thought, I imagine if you listen to the show, you are interested in lyrics, and if you're interested in lyrics you almost certainly appreciate the mountain goats. So uh, yeah, any listeners who haven't heard Cadaver Sniffing Dog, it's a, uh, my, uh, maybe I'll link it in the show notes. Interesting parallel uh, track to, to compare to this song. Admittedly, the mountain goats are a blind spot for me. Like I just yeah. never, they're, you know, because, you know, they, you know, they're a band that date back to the nineties the as well. And, you know, back then, you know, I, I maybe only had the money to buy like two or three CDs a month. <laughs> you have to like really, uh, you know, you know, do your research and, and stick your, stick your guns. And, you know, if it was like, okay, I'm going to get into this band this week. It's like, all right, I got to buy the whole back catalog, you know, I got to buy you know, every, and, you know, in Canada, like to buy, you know, records on independent American independent labels was like, you know, crazy expensive sometimes like because of import prices. So, you know, I'd have to spend like $30 on, you know, SST or drag city releases. And so, you know, mountain ghosts were just one of those bands like, you know, you know, I know, I know people love them, but I just didn't, uh, didn't get on board at the right time, I think, and just never, and kind of missed the off ramp. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, they've, they've had such this long, illustrious career. It's almost like, it, you know, it's almost one of the problems. To, yeah. It's intimidating to get into such a huge catalog. I mean, yeah. yeah. And I know people like just like are such huge like fans of, of John and, uh, yeah, it's just like one of those things like, it's like, I'll get into it next week. <laughs> Just don't have the time. Yeah, I would say uh, All Hail West Texas is one of those albums that I would almost recommend to, to anybody, which I wouldn't do with many albums, unless you're completely against lo-fi, in which case, yeah. try the Sunset Tree. Um, one of those is sure to really... Uh, is sure to really hit you. Although I do know somebody who just could never get along with John Darnielle's voice. It's It's a little bit of one of those sort of more nasally deliveries not for everybody maybe well at this point i like to talk about ratings this is something that you engage in from time to time as a music critic uh for this song forensic scene do you feel like you could give this a rating uh, out of five stars but purely in the context of the fugazi catalog um yeah it's it's, it's definitely a four star song for me Dude, do you want me to get more like decimal pointy? Uh, oh, <laughs> with it or just, oh, there are no or, rules. Or just uh, the standard <laughs> force. Yeah, I'd give it a. Yeah, uh, let's give it a four point three. Nice. Um, I just, yeah, I just, um, you know, uh, like the old uh, Big Lebowski line about the, the carpet that really holds the room together. I feel like this song really holds, you know red medicine together in a way. It's <laughs> in that it, uh, yeah, it just it really provides this emotional core to the record because um, i feel i always felt like red medicine is kind of this album it's fine it's one of those records where i feel like you know it's better to hear it on cd and I, I'm, I'm slowly becoming aware of like records that actually like work better on cd you know we've had so many years of like vinyl appreciation and you know and I, I still believe in the side one side two 
uh, structure of records. But yeah, but Red Medicine just feels like a more you know fluid kind of immersive experience where it's almost like a like a dusk to dawn kind of journey because yeah, it starts off pretty pretty hot out of the gates. And then with like forensic scene, it's kind of a gateway into this kind of the weirder midsection of the record um, where things get a little darker and moodier. And then the album kind of comes out the other side with stuff like target. Yeah. You know, it builds up. It occurs to me. I don't actually know where side one ends on the vinyl of red. Yeah. Neither do I. Cause it's like kill taker. It has like a pretty logical, your break yeah. i feel like even on cd i always kind of heard like look um, looking it up it looks like uh last song on side one is fell destroyed then uh by okay. you on side two uh kicks it off yeah that, that would make sense. but you know I, I still like you know hearing it as just like one continuous piece yeah um i think there's a lot to that it's um do you like me in bed for the scraping are some of my favorite Fugazi songs ever, but if the whole album were songs like that, it just wouldn't be as good of an album. Uh, paradoxically, right. It, it needs stuff like forensic scene and fell destroyed to, to give that lingering, I don't know, that lingering impression that you have of, of red medicine, which is, um, like you, I, I'd say it's my favorite album if I had to pick, and I have to admit, like, you know, like, Version was one of my, you know, first real exposures to dub, like, in a, in a sort of indie rock context. And, you know, and then it seemed like a year later, like, to- bands like Tortoise were super popular and, like, everyone was doing it. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but yeah, they, Fugazi definitely, like, on top of, like, opening my mind, you know, politically, like, you know, musically, they, they let me down various rabbit holes as well yeah um totally well i I think on my part i think i'll have to go with like a 3.5 for forensic scene above average certainly ties the room together as you said maybe not top tier per se but i do quite like it let's talk about plugs Stuart, I'll ask you just sort of open-endedly, both where can listeners reach you and do you have any anything coming up or writing you want to plug? But also specifically, I'd like to ask you to um, talk briefly about your book on um, Danko Jones, which I'm not familiar with at all. So if you want to give a brief summary of, of like what that's all about, um, I might be I might have to check it out. Um, Danko Jones are a Toronto rock band, a, a power trio, uh, fronted by a singer who calls himself Danko Jones. Um, and they are a band that have had an extremely strange evolution over the last, uh, yeah, 25 years now. Um, when they started, um, they were a band that was very much rooted in this kind of like John Spencer blues explosion, garage punk, uh, kind of vibe. You know, they were touring with bands like the makeup and the new bomb Turks, um, and they had, and they were, there was like a real mystique around them in Toronto. Like, you know, they didn't put out any records initially, so you had to go see them live. Their shows were always like sold out and these, and Danko is like an extremely charismatic performer, like, which you didn't often see in, in, at, in the indie rock scene at that time. Like, you know, this was sort of peak sort of 
grungy wool toque stare at your shoes kind of <laughs> era and uh Danka was very much like talking back to the crowd and kind of put you know very much in the sort of john spencer kind of mold like this real showman um and after this kind of period of hype where they were like i said touring this and they were touring the states as a as a independent band from toronto which was very rare like this is the thing it's hard to remember about pre-internet days it's like canada the canadian u.s border was like a brick wall for bands <laughs> um from can't trying to like make it in the u.s like you know you didn't read about canadian bands in spin or rolling stone or the nme or you know canadian records weren't really charting on the cmj college charts like it was we were really isolated from you know the circuit in the u.s so danko jones was one of those rare bands that they broke through and got props from these cool bands like blonde redhead was another early tornado them and so they seem to be having like all this indie cred and like touch and go was rumored to be signing them and then it just sort of died out a bit and then they kind of transitioned into just like a real kind of straight ahead acdc zz top style like hard rock band and they had some commercial success in canada with that but then in 2001 they started touring europe and they totally got swept up in this like hives soundtrack of our lives like swedish garage moment and they became super huge in europe like playing all these huge festivals selling out like 2000 cap rooms in stockholm and in germany but in canada their stock totally like plummeted um (laughs) The indie scene and they sold out or something. Well, you know, in the early two thousands, Canadian indie rock was all Arcade Fire, Broken Social Scene, New Pornographers, and Danko were kind of doing this like swaggering seventies right, hard yeah. rock vibe, and they just like kind of like lost all their cool cachet. By the way, I'm, um, I'm wearing my The Unicorns T-shirt right now from back in the day. <laughs> there you go, Canadian content. There you go. Um, so they so they totally like missed you know, that whole moment because they were touring Europe all the time. Um, but through that, they like toured with Motorhead a bunch and they got, you know, they t- opened for Guns N' Roses. And so they got all this like cred among the sort of hard rock and metal community. While at the same time, like people like Mike Watt and Jello Biafra and, you know, Damien from Fucked Up, like all these people are huge fans of the band, but they're kind of this, they exist in this weird no man's land between like punk rock and hard rock. And, you know, they kind of confuse people on both sides of that <laughs> equation because they come from a total punk background, but the crowd they play for now is much more of a, like a mainstream hard rock crowd. That's so anyways, this book is sort of an oral history of like sort of tracking that evolution where, you know, they're, they're a reasonably successful band now, but in, but it's mostly in Europe and in Canada they're still like a club level band. Or in Europe they're like playing thousands of people at these huge festivals. That's fascinating. Wow. All right. Yeah. But yeah, the book features interviews with you know, like I said, like everyone from like Mike Watt and Jello Biafra to yeah, like members of Guns N' Roses, and then like <laughs> weirdly enough, they they did a series of videos with Elijah Wood and Ralph Macchio. <laughs> so. <laughs> So they're, they're just one of these bands that have like touched so many weird, disparate scenes throughout their career. And like, I can't think of another band that's had like that kind of trajectory, but it's also talks speaks to the fact that like, you know, 
we have a tendency, like, especially working within music media or, you know, you're always trying to discover what's next and be on top of like what's happening and what's everyone talking about. But, you know, all the while there's bands that are just like out there touring gig by gig, making a, you know, a solid living pre COVID of course. Um, but yeah, they're doing it without any press hype that like, you know, they kind of found their base and then just have sort of been like playing to their people for 15, 20 years Hmm. without any kind of media awareness. So, you know, so as someone who like, you know, essentially like I'm in the business of, of hype for lack of a better (laughs) term where, yeah, like I, you know, kind of have to track changes. Like it was, it was kind of cool to just get the perspective of the band that just like has, is far beyond their hype moment, but still surviving and, and still finding people. And like we said with like Fugazi early on, you know, there was no one way that people discovered Danko Jones. They've had all these, like, you know, there's a million different <laughs> pathways that people have discovered this band through. So, hmm. so yeah, so that's, that was a, that was a long elevator pitch. <laughs> well, I, I'm hooked. Um, sold. Cool. Any, anything else um, you want to tell our listeners to check you out? Yeah, with two children right now and trying to balance the work from home quarantine vibe, uh, you know, I haven't had a chance to like put my, put my brain into long-term thinking. It's just uh, getting through, <laughs> getting through another day. Right on. <laughs> just bring on through to, to nap time. But yeah, I've been fortunate to stay busy throughout this period. Yeah. Whether it's like, yeah, yeah. With CBC stuff and, uh, or um, yeah, just uh, various freelance writing. So cool. fortunately, yeah, well, that part is steady, but everything else in the world is complete chaos. Well, I'll definitely put links to your various uh, writing and your books and the uh, the show queue in the show notes. So listeners, check those out. And thanks very much for taking the time and talking about forensic scene with me, listeners. My plugs are the same as usual. Just you can spread the word about the show recommend it to uh, anybody that you can think of that's interested in fugazi if you want to reach me the email address is fugazi a to z at gmail.com you can join the facebook group i mentioned earlier just called the alphabetical fugazi i'll be asking listeners to talk about uh, whatever comments they have about the next song i'll be recording so go ahead and do that and i hope you'll join me for the next episode when we will be discussing full disclosure until then keep your eyes open this is my last